Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast brings you the leading specialists in every area of medicine. Uh, Disclaimer, please note, however, this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as personal medical advice. For that, please consult your trusted healthcare provider. Today's podcast will focus on a devastating neurological condition, Parkinson's disease. Now, Parkinson's disease, as many of you are aware, is a movement disorder where affected patients have trouble with simple daily tasks such as walking, dressing themselves, sometimes even eating because of tremors. The classic symptoms associated with Parkinson's are the tremors. And I know, because I hear this from patients all the time, every time somebody develops a tremor, they're like, oh my God, am I getting Parkinson's disease? And that's not true. The other notable sign is difficulty walking. And Parkinson's has actually a very classical gait where the patients almost feel like their legs are stuck in cement as they walk. And we're all familiar with some very famous athletes and actors who've developed Parkinson's. Muhammad Ali, the the famous great boxer. Michael J. Fox, whose foundation has done amazing work in raising money and awareness. And recently, uh, I didn't know this before uh, the last month, but Alan Alda, the famous MASH actor, and you know, in this article from Scientific American, which I read, I was kind of shocked to see his face because it's sort of like this blank stare. And, uh, you know, he was someone very notable for being very funny and um, charismatic. Now, this also is personal. My grandfather suffered from Parkinson's disease the last two decades decades of his life. Um, Parkinson's disease was originally described in 1817 by James Parkinson in a paper he titled The Shaking Palsy. Unfortunately, since that time, there's been little advancement in therapy. But today, my guests will hopefully shed light on some new developments in Parkinson's treatment. In fact, hint, it may not even be a brain disease as commonly thought, but actually a gut problem. Dr. Michael Zasloff and Dr. Denise Barber are the co-founders of a company called Enterin, which is on the cusp of some fascinating treatments for Parkinson's disease, focusing on the gut-brain connection. Both of these doctors have pretty impressive credentials. It might take a whole half hour to say all of their titles. So I'll just say Dr. Zasloff is a professor of pediatrics and genetics at Georgetown University. And Dr. Barbot is a professor of neurology at Weill Cornell Medical College. But there's a lot more if you uh, go to their entrance site. Um, Just really excited to have them on the podcast. So welcome to both of you. Welcome, Dean. We're, We're thrilled to be here. All right, great. So a question now, the way we have to handle this is that whoever feels the most uh, compelled to answer can take it over and you can share. When did both of you become interested in Parkinson's disease and how did you end up collaborating to form this company, Enterin? Well, I actually um, was never interested in Parkinson's until um we started Enterin. Um, I was I directed the neurovascular division and um, knew nothing about Parkinson's disease. Um, still don't know very much um, until we st- started this company. 
um, it was far, far removed from my mind. However, I have been working on neurodegenerative disorders for a very long time, thinking okay. about what damages the brain and how to prevent it from uh, the damage from progressing and from coming on from happening in the first place. So, um, and Michael and I had been working on a neurodegeneration project together before we started Enteron. And you had a good yeah. reason. I had a very personal reason, like you, Dean. My brother-in-law uh, had uh, developed Parkinson's some several years before we started Enteron. And I did not, you know, again, I'm a MD, a PhD. I I knew very little about Parkinson's other than what I was what I was what I learned in medical school, and frankly, what is still being taught to medical students, and what most doctors currently understand Parkinson's to be. I actually diagnosed it, as I said, when I saw him. Um, but as I began to read more deeply into the most recent literature, uh, I read that. It is now conclusive that a very specific protein accumulates in the nervous system of people with Parkinson's, and it was called it's called alpha-synuclein. I when I began to read more about alpha-synuclein, I realized that that protein had certain biophysical characteristics that resembled, or at least gave it certain properties that would cause it to stick to the inside of certain membranes within neurons. And I also knew that some compounds that my laboratory had been working on, both at Penn and at the NIH, where I had been some years earlier, would have potentially the capacity to displace alpha-synuclein from neuronal membranes and potentially benefit them, uh, benefit the, the nervous system in such a patient population. So I called several colleagues of mine at the NIH and some colleagues at Cambridge, England, were experts in this area, and they they began some work at a very basic level. And over the course of about a year and a half, the data came back rather dramatically. And at a very basic level, their work told me that this compound, which we have subsequently developed, which is called ENTO-1 or squalamine phosphate, is capable of displacing alpha-synuclein from neuronal membranes, preventing its aggregation, and potentially um, representing a, a therapeutic, a potential therapeutic that might have benefit in Parkinson's. And at that time, as Denise said, we were both working on another problem. And 
I called her. Denise is the expert, despite her disclaimer. <laughs> Denise is one of the most brilliant clinicians I know, in addition to being a scientist, but she's a mm. brilliant clinician. She she trained in England and, and knows more neurology than anyone I've ever met. Yeah, by the way, I know the British are, you know, I've had some British instructors here in the United States and also when I was in Israel, and they are excellent and they are very physically exam focused. And again, for our listeners who don't know, neurologists are sometimes considered to be some of the best doing the best physical exam because before CAT scans and MRIs, you know, it was really a good neurologist was hopefully able to diagnose certain diseases from their exam. You know, today, unfortunately, um, we're as doctors, we're moving too far away from that. So that, um, that's exactly it. I know. And then we started. So I called just to finish this. I, yeah. I then said, Denise, I got an idea, hmm. you know, and, and Denise had formed several companies in the past as, and I had formed one in the past. And, and she said, you know, I like your idea. Let's get going. Hmm. And that's how it began. So it also began with the, with the inspiration of a patient, the need to appreciate, to deal mm. with a problem that we didn't feel was effectively being managed. Right. Well, because, you know, and I want to take a step back, but, you know, I, again, in my 30-year career as a doctor, and I'm not in this area, so to speak, uh, but again, I see, I see patients that sometimes have other conditions that come to me, but they have Parkinson's. I'll, again, I'll never forget, there's a 42-year-old woman who came to me, had a very bad case of Parkinson's, it just seems to be so little progress, you know, over all of these years. And I just want to take a step back for the listeners, and I'm going to try to go carefully so they can understand, because I'm actually going to even go back to my medical school days. And I remember, because it was very uh, it was very clear that we were like in pathology, for example, and we would look at brain slides, and they would show us a picture of what's called, uh, they would show us a slide of what's called the basal ganglia. And again, for the listeners, that's a portion in the brain um, and there was an area that was called the substantia nigra. And the way we could always remember that in our pathology classes, because it appeared black, uh, you know, it was like this little black specks in the, you know, in the, in these cut slices of the brain. And we were taught that Parkinson's, you know, there was, um, pathology. A lot of times that, that, that black spot would be lighter and lighter. And also, I guess, meaning that there was no dopamine coming out of there. And a lot of people hear dopamine, they know that's sort of like the, the thing that gives you a little bit of a high, but in Parkinson's disease, that was always considered to be where one of the main disruptions were. And I remember from my grandfather, and I know from other patients, sometimes they were prescribed something called L-dopa, which was a medicine to try to, I guess, essentially replenish the dopamine, but it had lots of side effects, didn't seem to change the course, so Denise, as the clinician a little bit, I know you said you're not a Parkinson's expert, but I'm sure, in, again, dealing with neurodegenerative diseases, was am I saying this basically correct? Is that, you know, was the stat Absolutely. status quo? Absolutely, Dean. This was, um, we were taught, as you say, that there was this tiny little area deep, deep down uh, in the upper brain stem uh, called the substantia nigra, and it sort of disintegrated, and that's what caused Parkinson's disease. Right. And we said you know, what starts this disease in the depths of the brain and and, and and why that particular area and why why not the rest of the brain and why not other places and right. where's it coming from and what's causing it in the first place? None of that was addressed. It just that was it. 
and you got a tremor and a motor disorder, and then you were given some L-dopa, and then it worked for a while, and then it stopped working, and then you were stuck. And that's pretty much still the case, Mm. except that our understanding of where the disease is beginning and how it's coming about is shifting, has shifted very dramatically in the last 15 years or so. And it started shifting with um, a Danish uh, pathologist, German German Danish pathologist by the name of Heiko Brock. And Brock came along in the early 2000s and and made a discovery. He looked at um, patients who had died of Parkinson's disease and he did, um, and he looked at their um, patients who died early in the course of disease, patients who died for other reasons but had Parkinson's disease. And he sort of um, found that the pathology that we associate with um, Parkinson's disease, which used to be called Lewy bodies, it was still called Lewy bodies, but we now know what Lewy bodies are, were present um, in places other than the substantia and other than the brain before they ever appeared in the brain. In fact, they were present in the gut uh, at much earlier stages. And they can I ask you a question? How did I just had a curiosity? though he was a pathologist, so he was taking he was looking at patients who I guess obviously had died from Parkinson's disease, and he was looking at different tissue because that that's like that's pretty dramatic that's like someone saying i'm looking for gold here but i'm gonna go look you know the other side of the country for so you know where you wouldn't expect any so like he was taking tissue from the, the gut and everything just just out of curiosity i, I mean i'm just finding that fascinating yeah i mean i don't know what he was thinking but he was obviously looking at uh the entire nervous system from, from oh okay right central mm-hmm. nervous system as well as central nervous uh-huh. system okay he found that the protein that um, Michael is talking about, alpha-synuclein, right. um, which is what Louis bodies are made of, as it turns out, was present in, in the ganglia in the, in the bowel, in the wall of the bowel, before they appeared in the brainstem, let alone higher up in the brain. And um, he did this over and over for large numbers of cases and concluded that there must be maybe some toxin in, in the environment or something in our food um, or maybe an infection. Mm-hmm. He actually mentioned infection. Yeah. Infection or toxin in the GI tract, in the gut, that must um, stimulate, uh, that must start off this process that ends mm-hmm. up causing Parkinson's disease. And since then, of course, we have, there's a now a large body of literature showing that yes, in the vast majority of cases, uh, there is um, this office and can accumulates in the enteric neurons and the ganglia in the gut way before it appears in the brain. Occasionally it appears in the brain before the gut. And perhaps in those cases, it's um, an infection that um, gets in through the nose, possibly. But in the vast majority, the bowel is involved. And it makes sense because the bowel is huge. If you open it up, this surface area is the size of a tennis court. Right. It's huge. So right. in terms of surface area, it's, it's bigger than anything else in the body. Whereas an eye, you know, an infection can get in through an eye, but that's only a square centimeter. Or an ear, that's half a square centimeter. You get in the mouth, that's sort of 20 square centimeters. No, great point. Huge. Right. They're more walled They're off. A yes. squad, a huge, huge yes. right. surface area. So consequently, 99% of infections get in through the GI tract. And the early work we did was to say, well... Um, why does alpha-synuclein accumulate in enteric nerves? 
um, in the presence of infection. Perhaps it has an immune function. Perhaps. Well, yeah, yeah. Actually, I want to stop you because you, you bring up a lot, couple of really good points, and I hope I can clarify for the listeners and probably for myself. One of the quick things too, I want to ask because I remember this on board exams, like when I took my internal medicine board exams. Okay. One of the things they would say, <laughs> I can imagine you remember this because you know what? When you when you study for tests, you don't forget if you get something wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> aluminum used to be they used to it would be a question: which of one of these, you know, whatever toxins, whatever could is associated with parkinson's now is has that been dispelled or is that still something no no let me say no it's dispelled it's still out there but it's it's still out there but it's not not enough garbage okay uh, cause again, talking what you were saying about some kind of toxin, you know, people, you know, a lot of times too, you just, you know, say like my patients come to me in my practice and I actually don't do it, but they're always asking about heavy metal, you know, yeah. toxicity. And, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of tests being done on that now again, but the relevance we don't know. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing you just said to me, it was one of the questions I was dying to ask both of you that, and I'll just, I have to pre. I have to uh, preface it with this, you know, in my field, I do an immunology, but I also do allergy. And it just shows you how sometimes doctors were uh, <laughs> a little bit in the dark, you know, for many years, for example, something called mast cells, which, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, they're immune cells, but what would typically happen, cause you know, mast cells are where the IgE binds and that releases histamine and causes these allergic reactions. And so, you know, when patients, um, you know, had a lot, like, you would have a lot of allergic reactions, whatever. And we'd say, oh, you know, you have a lot of mast cells, you produce a lot of histamine and saying, you know, but we would always like preface it by saying, you know, it's not an important cell, you know, it, uh, it's just there to cause allergies. When you think about it, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, the creator didn't come up with mast cells just to cause allergies and bother people. It must have a very important immune <laughs> function, which is what we realized in COVID because I see a lot of patients they get what's called mast cell activation and a lot of unfortunate issues from inflammation from probably macrophages and mast cells. So we know they're a first line of defense. Mm-hmm. So my question to you is a little bit double here. Amyloid, which again, always has gotten a lot of, lot of uh, press about being involved in Alzheimer's and I guess the tau proteins. And now you're mentioning this alpha- uh, The nuclein. The nuclein, thank you. What what do you perceive is the, the reason we have that? Um, Dean, you hit on probably the single most important unifying factor in all of the in in all of the neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's, Huntington's, Lou Gehrig's disease, and so on. Um, it turns out that in all of these diseases. All of these diseases, a a class of proteins is um, accumulates, and that class of proteins has the peculiar property of aggregating when its levels inside a nerve cell become reach a certain concentration, abundance, they get sticky. And as they get sticky, what they do is they they clog up the normal um, the normal 
um, let's call it um, garbage disposal system yeah. of nerve. Yeah, like autophagy, the way they just sort yeah, of self-digesting exactly. and nerve, just cleaning exactly. out. Yeah, mm-hmm. Nerve, unlike other cells, rarely, if ever, um, uh, duplicates, rep- replicates. You're born, when you're born with certain neurons, you're going to have to have those neurons around for the rest of your life. So over the course of your life, junk accumulates, and that junk has to be cleared. As it turns out, in each of the neurodegenerative diseases, a particular class of protein, a protein that has the capacity to self-aggregate, to form clumps, accumulates. We believe, this is what we believe, we believe that these proteins are all playing an immune role like alpha-synuclein alpha-synuclein accumulates in the nervous system of the gut and we've proven that we've shown this in response to infection for example in children in children even in in babies and what it does is it calls the immune system in to do a good thing we've got a virus in our midst help us and that alpha synuclein is squirted out is produced and it protects the 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 region of the gut probably alerts the rest of the nervous system that there's a problem down there and it calls in blood cells so white blood cells so we'll think of it as a defensive protein immune defensive protein and it probably stops viruses from getting into the nerve cells and it stops viruses from getting into the nerve cells the same is almost certainly true of uh, of beta amyloid, the the principal protein involved in Alzheimer's, and almost certainly for the others, but they're not as well studied. So we think we think that there is fundamentally an immune basis, immune function. All of these proteins that are involved in neurodegeneration play and. That story is still basically um, being being studied. That and 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 the, the truth of what I said is 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 still under considerable investigation. But that's the way we're thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, we're, we're going to get into. In, we're heavily involved now in figuring out the defenses of the nervous system uh, within neurons, both in the brain and in the periphery that protect the nerves and the brain and also protect the rest of the body. Right. So that's that's simply the function. That is the function. So it, what we're saying is that alpha-synuclein, when it accumulates excessively, becomes a bad guy. Yeah. But normally, it's very important. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and people with Parkinson's, people who develop Parkinson's, either have a chronic infection perhaps in their gut, perhaps have a leaky gut so that their gut is now making alpha-synuclein because it doesn't like the idea of, of the normal bacteria, gut bugs in their gut, you know, trying to invade the wall of the gut. Or it could be that they have a, a set of mutations that either makes too much, causes the nerve cell to make too much alpha-synuclein, or prevents the cell because of mutations from getting rid of it effectively. 
But whatever the reason, they accumulate alpha-synuclein to a to a to a degree that is harmful. Okay. And, and now, one of the th- what's going on? Yeah. Now, one of the things you both know also too, and we know this. Uh, it's very frustrating in medicine. You know, neurological diseases, unfortunately, once they sit in, are probably one of the hardest things to reverse. You know, there's, I mean, we know like leukemias and cancers are obviously dangerous, could be life-threatening, but, you know, thank God we have treatments, you know, when we're, you know, eradicating cancerous cells, you know, or, or whatever, it's heart disease, we have medicines, you know, neurological diseases such as Parkinson's, once things set in, you know, when the patients get the mass facies or the that what we call the pill rolling tremors, you know, all the very classic things, you know, the cogwheel rigidity of Parkinson's, it's quite hard to reverse. So is there anything that's on the horizon that's helping with early detection of Parkinson's before it's full blown? And one of the things I'll just preface this with, one of the things that got me even to reach out to you guys, I was reading the Scientific American article about, you know, and it's so, to me, it was fascinating. He says, where does Parkinson's begin? And I was like, what do you mean, where does it begin? It begins in the brain. But apparently it doesn't. And and the other interesting thing in the article, which I had known because I, I also knew from my grandfather and also a very close dear friend who passed away recently from Parkinson's or Lewy body dementia, that wasn't really clear, was that this person had very violent dreams. I remember the wife telling our family that, you know, she was getting struck in the middle of the night and he was injuring himself. And this was really all, you know, preceding uh, the onset of the other more obvious symptoms. And in the article, they discussed this thing called rapid behavioral disease, which they said 80% of the time uh, predicts the full onset of Parkinson's by like 10 or 15 years. So do we have anything besides these, you know, first of all, too, just so everybody doesn't get too worried. I mean, I've had nightmares and I probably, my wife's seen me, you know, kicking in the air at night sometimes, but hopefully, you know, it's not Parkinson's disease. I mean, so how, how would you, Denise, I guess, yeah. you know, being yeah. a neurologist, discuss this? So actually, that you bring up some really, really good points. The first point is that um, you spoke about the um, the name associated with the disease Parkinson's. Parkinson's described originally this motor syndrome, right? Motor symptoms, the tremor, the, the shuffling gait, the rigidity, the posture and all that. And to this day, that's how Parkinson's disease is still diagnosed a century and a half later, when in fact the disease um, begins many, many decades before that, probably in childhood or in early adulthood, and in, in because it's the bowels are so frequently involved, the first symptom is typically constipation. Right. Mm. When you ask patients with Parkinson's disease, you know, are you constipated? The answer is almost always yes. And when did it begin? Oh, as far back as I can remember, when my first child was born or when I was, I remember as a child, my mother used to give me laxatives or sit me on the, you know, really, really far back, many, many decades before. So that's typically the first symptom. Um, what you're describing, REM behavior disorder, uh, typically occurs a little later in the when you're in the 30s, maybe 40s, and um, that is, as you say, a uh, an abnormality of the circadian circuitry, circadian rhythm um, that controls sleep wake cycles and dream non dream sleep uh, through which we cycle every night. That whole circuitry, which is based in, in the brain, in the hypothalamus, is all deranged. 
uh, and uh, is, is misfunctions. And as a result of that, normally you fall asleep. And when you're going to dream, orders come down from that part of the brain telling your muscles to go f- to go floppy so that you don't act out your dreams. You don't kick around and- You're talking about in a normal situation. In the normal situation. Right, right. That's how we normally, we're very floppy. We have this sort of- Right, brains. right, right. But when that circuitry isn't working, those messages don't go down and the muscles don't become paralyzed while you're dreaming. And mm. so you act out your dreams. If it's nightmares, you act out nightmares. Right. And so as you say, typically they are nightmares of somebody attacking one of your family members and you're defending them and fighting them mm. off. And in the process, people jump out of bed and hit their partners and spouses and and hurt themselves and end up in hospital, you know, break bones and and hurt their heads and and things. That's REM behavior disorder. It typically starts in the 30s and 40s and almost always, nothing is exactly 100%, but as close to 100% as you can, almost always ends up converting, progressing to full-blown Parkinson's disease. Occasionally it progresses to Alzheimer's, or some other neurodegenerative disease, but almost always it ends up becoming Parkinson's disease. But this disorder, is this weird? I mean, there's like a frequency to it. I mean, like, as I said, people will have sporadic, you know, uh, nightmares. Well, yes, and so- I mean, it's diagnosable, you know, proper REM behavior disorder is diagnosable. You know, it used to be polysomnography. There are home ver- versions of that. You can measure circadian rhythm now, as we do with temperature. Um, but you can show that the muscles are not, you know, on the skin, on the chin, I mean, and on the extremities, that the muscles are not going flaccid when they fall asleep. When they mm. enter REM sleep, the muscles are not paralyzed and they act out, they move around. And they say supposedly too, these patients are, are more limber actually in these nightmares than they are when they're awake. Correct. Absolutely. As if as if it overcomes the... Right. Right, the inhibition. That's right, the, the yeah. condition. Right. So that's REM behavior disorder. It does progress to Parkinson's disease, and so does constipation. So if you take a group of college students, for example, um, and you separate them into the 90% that have normal bowel function and the 10% that are mild or severely constipated, and you follow them for a long time, you find that the prevalent, the incidence, subsequent incidence of Parkinson's disease is something like 13, 14-fold among the severely constipated college students as it is among the non-constipated. This is scary because, you know, yeah. again, also in my practice, I see a lot of patients with constipation. I mean, I, it's interesting you bring this all out because I, I do a lot of like functional medicine in my immunology practice. And I, you know, I wasn't taught a lot about this in medical school residency, but in my extra training, I am so focused on people's bowel movements, you know, that, that they're going multiple times a day. When I hear somebody doesn't go for three or four days or a week, I'm really concerned. And now I never even thought about, I mean, you know, again, we're dealing with a lot of autoimmune diseases that this is an issue, but you know, the fact that, you know, again, why, why not being neurological diseases, it's, it's quite frightening, but that's something, again, hope we're going to get to in a few minutes, hopefully an earlier intervention would be huge. Um, and the other one I just wanted to mention was loss of smell. Yes, um, yes, is, right. Mm-hmm. Which, is a, which is common in all neurodegenerative disorders um, and also happens, tends to happen before diagnosis of Parkinson's disease happens fairly early. And, um, um, you know, and now, of course, in the middle of COVID. I would say this is really frightening. What are we going to be seeing 10, 15 right. years down the road here? Right. And in the 1918 um, um, flu epidemic, it was very much a feature too. And so the question is, 
you know, is that uh, what does loss of smell mean? Well, it means that the um, parts of the brain that maintain the sense of smell, that can smell, that are actually are very much part of the regenerative part of the brain. And if they go, you can assume that some portion of the regenerative mechanisms of the brain have been damaged. Mm. And that can herald neurodegenerative diseases. So the question is, from your perspective, for example, and among the patients who lose their smell during COVID, some of them for prolonged periods of time, they've been followed up to a year or more now. Mm-hmm. How many of those are going to end up getting a neurodegenerative disease of one sort or another, if not Parkinson's, something else? Mm. Is it possible now, because again, they mentioned in the article with Alan Alder that his diagnosis was confirmed. It sounded like by scans. Do MRIs or CAT scans give us any... Uh, I, I wasn't aware of that. Is there any way of uh, confirming the neurogenitive disease like Parkinson's yeah. right now with uh, those scans? No, the, diagnosis, the diagnosis is a clinical one. Clinical, yeah. To look at the basal ganglia to see how much dopamine is being made, whether the borders are nice and, and smooth or whether they're irregular and herald some early loss of dopaminergic systems. But the diagnosis is always a clinical one and requires the presence of um, a number of motor symptoms um, mm. that are pathognomonic of Parkinson's disease. Okay. All right. I, re- I guess I really want to get into your therapy, you know, again, because I'm sure people who are listening, they don't want to just hear about the same old, same old and the bad news. I mean, it's pretty exciting. Again, the work that you're doing with um, uh, squalamine, which is what are you calling enter enter a one? It's not squalamine. It's ent o one. Ent o one. It's a salt. It's a salt of squalamine. A salt. It's a salt of synthetically made salt. Yeah. And when I read in your articles, it seems like you're using this. It inhibits the alpha synuclein protein. But also, I guess it seems like you're kind of monitoring constipation in these patients, not so much the neurological changes. So maybe could you explain a little bit, um, you know, when your patients that you've entered into your studies, are they at different stages? Are they all around the same, you know, clear-cut Parkinson cases? You know, uh, do they have to have constipation to be entered into the, you know, the research? And and is, is what are right. you looking at as the endpoints? Well, when we started, we said we know that the compound is taken as a pill that you take by mouth. It acts locally on the enteric neurons. It doesn't get absorbed into the bloodstream, and it gets into the nerve cells and it displaces and prevents the deposition of these aggregates of alpha-synuclein on the nerve cells and restores the function of the enteric nerve cells. And all the animal experiments we've done show that you immediately restore the function of these nerve cells. And as a result of that, you um, you change the signal going up the vagus nerve to the brain and amplify that massively. In other words, restore the communication between the gut and the brain. So the first thing we had to do in our minds scientifically was to show that in real life patients with Parkinson's disease, when you take this pill, it in fact gets also gets into the nerve cell of the gut, does what it's supposed to do there, as we had shown in the animals, and that it uh, therefore uh, reverses constipation. So we, paced, we, we um, but in both studies, We've treated about 200 patients to date, and both in two studies, one was an open-label study, one was a randomized blinded study. In both studies, we said, let's take patients who've got Parkinson's disease, and this is anybody with Parkinson's disease, early, newly diagnosed, had Parkinson's for 20 years or 10 years, anybody really, as long as they also have constipation, 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was that was important because that's your endpoint to see if their constipation improves. They have to show that we could reverse. So it was. And how badly? I mean, I hate to ask this specifically, but how badly were these patients constipated? Were they not going for several days a week? I mean, what was your? We said the minimum was they had to have fewer than three spontaneous bowel movements a week. In other words, three bowel movements a week on mm-hmm. their own without the help of a laxative. Okay. So as it turned out, over 60% of the patients that came into the study were having fewer than one, between oh. zero and one bowel movement per week. Okay. These were really, really constipated mm-hmm. um, patients. Mm-hmm. Okay. Obviously, the more constipated they were, the greater the incentive they had to participate in the study. Mm, right. I guess it was more bothersome. And um, and in those, uh, so they had to have at least that amount, that amount of constipation, some of them very constipated. And we treated them for, uh, for in escalating doses. We started a low dose and we escalated until their bowel function normalized more or less until they were having bowel movements on a daily basis. And then we fixed the dose at that level. Uh, the treatment period we were allowed by the FDA was only three weeks, so that was a total treatment. A short period. time, yeah. Short time, and then we stopped, and then we watched to see what happened. And what we found in both studies, they were almost identical, was that the bowel function did normalize; their constipation was reversed in the vast majority of patients. But what we also saw, which was of course of much greater interest to us, was that their neurological symptoms improved. Their memory improved their really oh wow even had hallucinations and delusions wow disappeared um their depression got better their circadian rhythm which we monitored was skin temperature how long did you follow them for after the three-week period you know where you said you were following the constipation because these came out later right that the reversal the first, of these the first study we only followed them for for up to well two weeks officially, but we heard from their various physicians up to six weeks out. And there was one very dramatic case of a patient who had had hallucinations every single night. He had cockroaches climbing up his legs and ants oh. crawling up his arms for five years every night. And so the wife had long since moved out of the room. They'd leave the lights on. She would never leave him alone. And then when he, he got to a, a dose of 125 milligrams, suddenly the hallucinations stopped, stopped dead. And by the time they came back to see the physician, the, the treating physician, a few weeks later, the wife had actually moved back into the room. They were switching off the lights. He hadn't had hallucinations. He was going places alone. She was leaving him alone and going out with her friends. I mean, the whole life had changed. Wow. Wow. This was, this. that's amazing. That really. was amazing. And so m- many of the other patients with hallucinations recounted similar stories none of them were as dramatic as this but their hallucinations got better their memory um got better their depression got better their sleep got better and so in the second study we followed them for up to six weeks and um again found that the improvement that began during the treatment period continued to improve beyond the treatment period for several weeks that's as far as we followed them suggesting that there is some modification of the disease process itself going on here, not just symptom improvement of the symptoms. So, so do you feel that also that, I mean, I know, I know it's like a little bit of a conjecture on your part, but that if you were able to get these patients early, I mean, even let's say a patient that's having, you know, the, the rapid behavioral disorder and, and issues that, you know, ten, which, you know, and they are, there's no really, you know, 
uh, major neurological issues. But if you were able to identify these patients yeah. early and break up these, you know, the alpha syn uh, yeah. synuclein. What you're saying is, what you're asking us, asking us is, is there a way not just of preventing the progression of an established um, Parkinson's disease um, can diagnosis is there a way of actually preventing it from happening in the first place right. if you find patients with constipation or REM behavior disorder right. and the answer is that would be our hope we would have to study that we would have to take a group of patients with just REM behavior disorder for example which we've long wanted to do and um, you know treat half of them and not treat the other half and follow them you know for a year or two and see what proportion right. of Parkinson's disease in one group compared to the other? Right. Um, how many of them, you know, need dopamine? How many don't? Um, those sorts of things. That, of course, takes more funding, and uh, we haven't had a chance to. Do you that. feel at this point, too, that there's still also a strong genetic or hereditary component to this disease? I mean, obviously, there isn't in everything usually, but like I know also with these 23andMe's, uh, I remember, you know, hearing also, too, like Sergey. I forgot his last name, Brezhnev. He's one of the co-founders of Google. I mean, he did one of those 23, yeah. He did one of those 23 and me and he said, you know, he's got an increased risk of Parkinson's disease. Do you, like anything, we know epigenetics. I mean, there's genetics and then there's whatever lights the fire that you develop full-blown things. So I just said, I mean, again, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot. Do you, what's, what's your uh, your gut Literally, your gut feeling. <laughs> yeah, we, we think that's a great, great question, Dean. We think that every case, almost almost always, there's going to be some genetic component. There, it's going to be like with many things. There'll be two hits. You're going to let us assume um, be hit by a particular virus or infection in the gut or in the upper upper respiratory tract, and you're going to have to have some genetic basis. Most of the time, it isn't one gene. It's it's complicated. You know, most every aspect of our of who we are is a result of many genes, in addition, obviously, to to environment. But with respect to the genetics, it's going to be multiple genes. It, there are a few genes that have been identified as associated with risk. One of them is the gene responsible for gauchets, um, a, a, a Jewish disease, a disease that's prevalent in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. But the reason that is associated with Parkinson's is because that particular disease, that particular condition um, is due to or leads to a breakdown in the garbage disposal system of the of the of the nerve cell. So as a consequence, if alpha synuclein is stimulated to occur in an individual, then uh, its clearance, its removal, once it's done its job, is interfered with. And that's why we believe. Um, Alpha, that's why we believe that, that mutation occurs. But I, I want to add one other thing, and I have to add this because it's very important. Uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are basically diseases of aging. So the real question is, what's happening during aging? You know, everything I told you, everything I said to you, you know, 
could also be occurring at any time in your life, right? But right. what is it about aging right. that is makes these two diseases of aging so so prevalent? And the bottom line is we don't know. Mm. We have our own ideas, which we won't share right now. It may be that we're making hormones. Well, I was just about to ask you that because I, I, so <laughs> you must have read my mind because I wanted to ask you, it seems to me, again, too, and I, I believe it seems that like men are more prone to Parkinson's than women. I could be wrong, but that's what, you know, and please correct me if I'm not. And then I started thinking about, it, does it have to do with testosterone and estrogen and, and, and how that maybe influences alpha well, synuclein, you know? Yeah, let me even make it a little bit more... Let me put some more uncertainty into this. It may be, I wouldn't be surprised if there are many hormones we have not yet discovered that are responsible, that, that could play a role and that diminish with aging. But the fundamental question, I think, boils down to what happens to us when we age? Why do we age? And and to make it put some hope into this, if there are hormones, let's assume it's not estrogen or testosterone or or any of these, but let's call them hormones X, Y, Z, and D. We may, at some point in the future, discover them. That's still out there. People are looking. We are looking. And it may very well be possible that by supplementing or restoring these hormones, as if we were going to be taking vitamins now, we might be able to deal with some of these medical problems associated with aging. But I should point out that the big mystery, as far as I'm concerned, with medicine is relates to the whole fundamental question of what is going on when we age. Yeah. And I might point out to you, that many, many of the scientists engaged, they're mostly non-clinicians, but they're basically science, pure scientists in the process of aging, will tell you that this is in large part due to the failure of the body to clear unfolded protein garbage. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, so the... it could be that the fundamental problem is a breakdown in the system of that that are that are cells used to get rid especially the neurons mm, mm. to get rid of garbage you know as those neurons get older and older and that could be because certain hormones are no longer being produced if we could find those hormones and identify them we could put them back into the body and in a sense reactivate those neurons to you know get that garbage disposal system working again yeah we, a, yeah. we believe we're moving we ourselves uh denise and i are moving in that direction to better understand that system yeah i, I think that that's really important yeah go ahead we have in fact identified a whole family of hormones in mammalian brain that have some of these characteristics that we're working on right now. Right. So just like you know, but this no, is not that, that, that's very. Time. I think yeah, I think that's very illuminating. A little depressing, but you know, but look, we have to deal with what it is. You know, the other thing I always thought about a lot too, because you could also never um, put too much, put enough emphasis on circulation, 
And you know, again, Janice, you know this from you know dealing with strokes and other things. In and a lot of times, for many years, we again, you know, patients that sometimes develop dementia, you know, thought they had mini infarcts. But the bizarre thing to me is that sometimes, again, I you know, just to I don't know whether it's in Parkinson's. Actually, I think it is in Parkinson's. I, and even with Alzheimer's, a lot of these patients never seem to have heart attacks or anything. But it's just that they have brain disease. So it's you know, you know what I mean. Like let's say I've seen these patients like they have. Um, like great cholesterols, you know, and HDLs and this and that too. And like, so how can it be circulatory? Although so many well, things we know as we age, our circulation gets poor, either hardening of the arteries or, you know, the blood pressure or whatever, the flow. Well, so there's um, there's sort of the general circulation and then there's a microcirculation of the mm. brain. And in many patients with that we see as neurologists with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and the elderly have what we call, you know, periventricular white matter disease. They have, um, they have um, relative ischemia. They have relative reduction in, of blood flow in certain areas of the brain um, as they get older, or when they have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or even multiple sclerosis. So those, the neurodegenerative diseases, are associated with profound abnormalities of the blood vessels within the brain. Quite why that is, is a matter of debate. In many instances, just like there's deposition of some of these uh, unfolded proteins within cells, there's aggregation and deposition of some of these proteins and an inflammatory reaction around blood vessels, uh, clogging up the clearance passages around the blood vessels, narrowing the blood vessels. So there are, there is, you're quite right to say that the blood flow, blood circulation of the brain in patients with neurodegenerative disease is inordinately um, involved. And that part of the reason may be deposition of some of these substances within the vascular system uh, itself or, or, or in the immediate proximity of it. Are there other uh, like academic centers, I don't know, again, biotech companies that are working on, you know, similar things as you are like focusing on the gut or you guys the 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 one shining light in this area <laughs> well it's, a, it's an interesting question i think there are there's a lot of there's a lot of um um activity um both in the lay public and the lay press and amongst medical colleagues and in the literature regarding um the microbiome, and that means, but when 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 they when various people discuss the describe the microbiome, what they mean are the bacteria that are living in our gut, and there is a there that's are, obviously not what we're doing. We're not we're not doing that, but let but I want to give you a sense of sure no I appreciate complexity this. of this yeah. And why you have to be very careful when you when you act when you try to understand this problem this idea. The so the concept is that the bacteria in our gut um, can make things, make chemicals that can cause problems to our brain or cause our brain to become inflamed or cause damage to our brain and, and in some way can 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 make these promote or increase the likelihood we're going to develop these diseases. The problem is that almost all of these studies um, are based on animal studies in mice. 
But but worse than that, when we study human beings, we always study your feces. <laughs> and, yeah, dirty stuff. <laughs> and that has that's really not the microbiome. No, you're it's not. I know. Feces. We do not study the areas of the brain of the gut where the greatest number of nerves that connect to the brain are. And that would be the upper GI tract. That's a so, great point. I know people that I've dealt with who've told me the secret to so much of the immune system is in the small intestine. Exactly. And that's one of the hardest places to reach exactly. and so, study. Uh, I mean, unless you want to exactly. get super invasive. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Okay. Yeah. It's also the part of the gut, the duodenum in particular, the part of the gut that's supposed to be relatively sterile. It has very That's right. Blood. Right. And so you would have to, you know, to, to study that, you'd have to do an upper GI endoscopy and get samples that way, not... Yeah, it's it's the mist, it's the black hole mystery of the body. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, yeah. you know. So yeah. I have very little, there's very little good data, frankly, coming out of the, out of the microbiome studies of feces, which are the principal yeah. Yeah. done, that I, as a physician, can work with. Okay, so no. that's interesting. Now what do I do about it? No. I'm not going to... You know. That's a great point. Actually, I just want to let the listeners know, I, I frequently see patients that come to me that have these stool analysis from these companies, and I've talked to now several experts. They're fairly useless. Uh, so yeah. sometimes people can save their money um, because it just doesn't, it doesn't give me any information. And I've checked with some other experts because, again, I, you know, I, I was worried yeah. about um, a lot of autoimmune diseases and things that and maybe, look, we're, as physicians, we're always searching for any bodily fluid or whatever that could give us <laughs> a hint into uh, the mystery of the body. But, um, but anyway, Dr. Zasloff and Barbara, I want to thank you so much for coming on. You've shed so much light and I think hope. And I just want you to know I'm rooting really hard for you guys because I, <laughs> I think that this is such an important thing. Is there anywhere we can send our listeners to find out more about any Interin and the work that you're doing? Um, yes, our, our cell phones are actually on the website. The website's www.enterininc.com. Mm -hmm. um, uh, all our papers are there. We're mm -hmm. there. Yeah, and if the, uh, anyone wants to reach us, anyone wants to reach us, they can. Uh, I, look, I hope I hope yeah, people from the Michael J. Fox Foundation are listening because I have, I'll, tell, I'll have to end with one quick story. Michael J. Fox, uh, I have never met him. My son, who's actually in entertainment, has met him several times. He is one of the most decent, amazing people you will ever meet. I don't know if you guys have met him, but I have to share this story just to end the podcast. I had a patient, a lovely woman. Uh, this is what I was talking about earlier. She was in her early 40s, and she had Parkinson's disease. I, I was seeing her. She had other medical issues with sinus and allergies. So I was taking care of her. And we got to talking one time, and then she told me this story. Apparently, uh, when Michael J. Fox had a, one of his books come out, you know, it was one of his like uplifting books and his struggle in, in dealing with Parkinson's and how it's affected his life. He was at a book signing in New York, and uh, apparently, my patient's mother, who's probably like in her 60s, whatever, was there you know, online to have, you know, to got to meet Michael and he would sign the book, you know, that you bought. And so I, as she's walking through the line and she gets up to him, he looks at her and he says, what's the matter? She goes, I'm just really sad for my daughter. She's really struggling, you know, and da, da, da. And Michael J. Fox says to her, uh, give me her cell phone number. 
Mm. So mother gives her the cell phone number, you know, figures, okay, so whatever he did this, is that too? So my patient's telling me the story. She goes, one day she's in the street in New York City and she gets a call and, you know, say, hi, Julie. Yes. She goes, this is Michael J. Fox. And she's like about to hang up. Like, are you kidding me? And uh, she goes, no, no, this is Michael J. Fox. She goes, I met your mom and my book signing. And she told me, you know, you needed a little bit of, you know, inspiration. So, you know, I just want you to know we're doing a lot with research and stuff. Hang in there. And I, I got chills when I heard that because, you know, as I said, my son's known Michael J. Fox, you know, sort of peripherally. And, you know, the fact that there are human beings out there like that gives me hope. And the fact that the kind of work that you're doing gives me a lot of hope. So thank you. Thank you again. Really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you.